Well, this morning it is indeed our privilege to install and affirm John as an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically in this local church, Grace Community Church. Uh, Previously, we have talked about the qualifications of an elder and we, that is a collective we, we the elders as well as the congregation are convinced that John's life demonstrates that he meets those scriptural qualifications. Therefore, this morning, I am going to, to attempt to accomplish two tasks and to do it briefly. The first task is to deliver a charge to John as to the nature of the work of an elder. Uh, the second task is to bring understanding in light of John's installation as an elder, how his relationship to you as a member of the congregation will change. Well, as with any text, uh, there are key words that we would do well to understand that give us insight and understanding into the text. So please let me just very briefly highlight a couple of them. The first is the word aspires, aspires. The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Uh, The sense of that word is one who exerts a tremendous amount of energy or effort. To aspire means to long for, to eagerly long for something. Then we have the word desires. The word desires carries the sense of, it's it's more than a normal desire. It's an intense desire. It means to long for and to desire very much. The implications of these words is this. That the one who desires to be an overseer, which is synonymous with elder or pastor, the one who desires to be an overseer finds that they have an inner compulsion to do this. In other words, it's not a casual desire. It's something that they are willing to invest their life in and give their life to. I want to say this right from the very beginning because there is some confusion. This desire is not necessarily, and I'm even going to go out on a limb and say primarily, is not a desire to preach. There are plenty of guys who desire the office only so they can preach. That is not the sense here. The one who desires to be an overseer has a compelling desire to oversee the spiritual care and welfare of God's people. That may take different forms. It may be the public proclamation of the word. It may be more one-on-one ministry or teaching in another form. But the overarching desire is that he has to, he wants to, he's not forced to, he wants to, to take care of God's people. 
the one who desires to be an overseer, to be an elder in God's church, therefore should strive to live a life that qualifies him to enter such a holy office. The one who aspires to be an overseer will follow the advice of the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 9, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I, I, I grew up with the King James. And I like how the King James says, the King James says, I buffet my body. Say, so what does that mean? Paul says, I give myself whatever body blows I need to give it in order to keep it in line. He understood the power of his unredeemed flesh. Therefore, he was more than willing to rely upon the unstoppable power of the Holy Spirit to bring his, the entirety of his life into subjection to the word of God. That not only includes our physical desires, our physical appetites, but also we discipline the use of our minds. We discipline how, what, how, uh, how and what we think on. It's the total commitment of a person to bring it unto, under the word of God. So I hope you can see right off the bat there's nothing casual here. This is an intense desire to aspire to willingly take responsible for the spiritual care and well-being of God's people. And I'm going to say that several times. But again, it's an overwhelming desire. To be an overseer is not for the faint of heart. There are battles that will be fought. John, whether he recognizes it or not, he's about to learn it. He stands as a modern day David in front of the multitude of modern day Goliaths. David was a shepherd. And on two occasions we read that, well, at one time David had to go up against what? A lion. The lion wanted to attack the flock. David said, nah, baby, nah, not my house. Another time a bear, same thing, same outcome. And likewise, to be an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ means that there will be enemies to confront. In the Old Testament for David, it was a lion and a bear. The New Testament changes the language and the symbolism somewhat to that of what? A wolf. There are wolves that try and penetrate the local church. And it is John's responsibility now to stand with Ben and I and go to war and say no. And many of you know we had to deal with that here in the last year or so. And by the way, a predator doesn't give up easily. What are you saying? Be careful of the wolf that was turned away. They may try and come back. The modern day shepherd, like David, doesn't 
fight in his own strength. He confronts, he defends, and he fights wearing the armor of God. He's empowered by the spirit of God, and his weapon is the word of God. Well, notice that Paul tells Timothy that it's a noble task that is to be aspired to. A noble task that is a task, a responsibility to be desired. A noble task, obviously, is a task that has noble qualities. They say, well, what does this noble task consist of? I, I, want to, I want to emphasize this again. This noble task is a willingness to assume the responsibility of directing and caring for God's people. It's the task of bringing men and women and boys and girls to Christ. It is the task to never point to himself, but to be a modern-day John the Baptist and point away from himself and point to Christ and say, look there, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a task that's not to be entered into lightly or taken lightly. It is a task of great responsibility and with great responsibility, there is tremendous accountability. John, you must remember the words of James not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You, you may have noticed I, I tend to be on the side of a man of few words. Why? Because I'm going to give account for every word that I say. John, you must remember that from this point forward, and I mean this with, from the depths of my soul, you must remember that from this point forward, each word you utter carries great weight and you will give account for those words. It's a task that is to be entered into thoughtfully and deliberately, not casually or carelessly. Say, so, well, why is this true? Well, it's a task that requires a great deal of energy. It's a, it's a task where one must, from the very beginning, count the cost. Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow, now, no one who puts his hand to the plow, there's no coercion here. They willingly put their hand to the plow. They're not forced to do it. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, if you accept this office, there's no turning back. There's no turning back. Say, why do you want to preach to your 80? There's no turning back. What else would I do? I've stepped over the threshold. The door's locked behind me. There's no turning back. Like I heard Alistair Bake say at the Basics Conference, he's too old to do anything else. What would he do? I'm with you, brother. So what is the cost? What will it cost the man who accepts the responsibility of oversight of God's people? Well, immediately my mind went to the writer of Hebrews in describing Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for, or he's looking to the reward. That was a deliberate choice that Moses made. And why did he make such a costly choice? Because his entire value system had changed. To be, to be identified with Christ and to be identified with the people of Christ to Moses was far more valuable than all the riches of the land of Egypt. It's a noble task, but it's also a daunting task. John Calvin said, it is no light task to represent God's son in such a great task as erecting and extending God's kingdom in caring for the salvation of souls whom the Lord himself has deigned to purchase with his own blood and in ruling the church, which is God's inheritance. Notice this, it is, it's a noble task. It's a noble work. It's work. It's a good work because it has God's blessing in this life and God's promised reward in the next. Godly men should strive to become elders in the church. Why? It's a noble task. The Puritan preacher William Perkins asked, how can you know for yourself whether God wants you to go into the ministry or not? His answer was, you must ask both your own conscience and the church. Your conscience must judge of your willingness and the church of your ability. That's the first part. How does John's relationship with you now change? Well, I sat down with John the week before he preached his first sermon, and I drew him a picture of the leadership pyramid. So if you would humor me for just a couple of moments, picture in your mind a pyramid, and it has a very broad base, and it also has a towering pinnacle. Now, in your mind's eye, I want you to write across this very broad base two phrases. The first phrase is unlimited or let's see how I want to say this is at the base there's limited responsibility and unlimited options. Okay. So at the very bottom there's not much responsibility. You can do whatever you want to do. And that's where lots of people live and they want to rise no higher than that. But as one begins to ascend toward the top of the leadership pyramid, they must understand that they no longer have unlimited options and that they have increasing responsibility. And this process continues until one reaches the pinnacle of the pyramid. And that, so at the top of the pyramid, the leader has far more responsibility than they do options. Ben needs to understand this. Ben's wife needs to understand this. John needs to understand this. God blesses him with a wife someday. She needs to understand this. Sherry, I believe, understands this. I understand because I have risen to a position of leadership by God's calling, not of my own making. By God's calling, I have tremendous responsibility. Ben has tremendous responsibility. John has tremendous responsibility. But we have very few options. Therefore, please understand that John has reached the pinnacle of leadership, which means he has great responsibility and, again, far fewer options. Don't get mad at him for that. Understand 
that you endorsed him to take that position in your life. And I truly believe there is no higher position of leadership than the leadership of God's people. How could there be? You say, oh, you think you've got uh, more responsibility than the President of the United States? Absolutely. Hey, what I do matters for eternity. What Ben does matters for eternity. What John does matters for eternity. By the way, what you do matters for eternity too. Okay. So to lead God's people is the greatest of responsibilities. Here today, John moves beyond friendship to leadership and responsibility. His loyalty must be first to Christ and to Christ's church and everything else is second. John has an obligation to put the needs and the commands of Christ first. And to lead God's people, there is a sense where John must not only be among God's people, but he has to be in front of God's people. You cannot lead from the middle of the pack. And there are times when it will be necessary for him to, as it were, separate himself from the pack. Please understand it's because of his loyalty to Christ, he's not going to be able to do. For, let me give you a practical example of this. My family knows, come, ask Victoria, my family knows come Saturday night at 7 o'clock, I'm out of there. I go to my office and I study. Pete Rose could be sitting in my family room and I'd say, see you, Pete. See, you hit king. See, that's what I'm talking about. We have fewer options. You, you can't always do what other people do. Why? Because of your responsibilities. He now has great responsibility and fewer options. Well, if what we just heard was a charge... I have a reminder. There will be some overlap. It's kind of hard not to. So this is addressed um, to John by way of reminder. I, I, I hope and pray as the, the man who led your pastoral training, none of this is new. If it is, sorry, I failed you. But then also a reminder to the congregation of what pastoral ministry is. Uh, so if we just looked at the weightiness and the, the daunting task, this is um, my attempt, attempt in about 15 minutes to survey the New Testament's teaching on what pastoral ministry is. Uh, we already heard from 1 Timothy 3 where Paul says that the man who aspires to the office of overseer desires a noble task. So it's a calling. So not just anyone can do it or decide to do it. God calls pastors. And as we just heard in the prayer, pastors really are not special in and of themselves. Uh, pastors are men who have been called by God. And that phrase, noble task, in 1 Timothy 3.1 could be translated, good work. 
pastoral ministry is good but hard work. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1, referring to his own ministry, he said, For this I toil. And Paul uses a word that means strenuous work. Uh, I believe the word is agonizomai. It's where we get the word gymnasium. It's where you go to work out. It's where you go to work out your muscles. Well, some of us, I, I don't do that. Uh, where you go to work out your muscles and exercise. The task that God calls pastors to is hard, agonizing labor, but joyful. Well, what does the New Testament teach about pastoral ministry? Well, here, here's the definition, somewhat puritanical, but we'll explain it. Pastoral ministry is a calling, a noble task to teach and preach Christ and Him crucified out of love for Christ and His people for their sanctification. And this must be done faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit for God's glory alone. I'll repeat that later, but I think we can understand it through seven words. Motive being number one, work being number two, content number three, goal number four, five, emotion, six, road, and seven, energy. So we begin with the motive. We begin with the end in mind. Pastoral ministry is God's idea. Therefore, he has the right to determine the motive for it. And pastoral ministry, like all of the Christian life, our motive should be God's glory and God's glory alone. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So as pastors, and John, as a pastor, pastoral ministry is not about you. And it is not even supremely about this congregation. It is first and foremost about God and His glory before it is about anything else. You must remember that God's... And if, John, if you can get this now, well served. God's reputation is on the line in pastoral ministry, not necessarily your reputation. But you'll find that when you take care of God's reputation, He will take care of your reputation. And pastoral ministry has a way of taking care of itself when God's glory motivates you. You will be faithful. You will love and serve God's people in God's way when His glory is foremost in your mind and desires. And God's glory is the only sustaining motivation for the noble and hard work of pastoral ministry. So that's the motive. But what's the work? The work of pastoral ministry is teaching and preaching the Bible. It's a both hand. We see this worked out early in the apostles' pastoral ministry in the book of Acts. Acts 6 records a problem that the church faced. Hellenist widows were being neglected in the distribution of food. And this was a real problem. A real need was not being met. Well, how would the apostles respond? Well, we see it in Acts 6, 2 through 4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles told the church, We will not give up preaching the ministry of the word to serve tables. 
And the apostles did not delegate this work of serving tables because they didn't think it was important. They thought it was very important. That's why they gave a solution. They were saying, this is not the work that we should be doing. This is not the work that God has called us to. Their solution was to choose men who had a good reputation, who were filled with the Holy Spirit and were wise to take care of the widows. It's a grace community. And John, we learned two essential lessons for pastoral ministry. One, pastors must be devoted to the ministry of the word. There's a real problem. There was a real need. But the, the apostles did not get distracted. They were devoted to the ministry of the word, which the text says is the preaching of the word of God. And second, a pastor cannot be fully devoted to the ministry of the word if he is not devoted to prayer. Scripture is a supernatural book. We have God's word, and to understand it, we need supernatural help. And prayer is how we rely on the Holy Spirit, the great illuminator of Scripture, to help us. We ask for His illumination of Scripture. And without prayer, pastors are ineffective. So preaching and teaching the Bible must permeate pastoral ministry. It's a public work, but it's also a private work. So John, in those times of pastoral counseling, it's, it's another opportunity to teach the Bible. That's all it is. You don't need clever wisdom. You don't need anything else. You need the Bible. Teach the Bibles. Pastors have no counsel to offer other than Scripture, and we give it by teaching the Bible. So the work of pastoral ministry is to preach and teach the Bible. And the content that we teach, the content of the Bible, is Christ and Him crucified. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.24, Him we proclaim. The content of his preaching was Christ. To the church at Corinth he wrote, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. But I decided to know nothing among you Nothing, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, what do we learn from Paul? Well, first, Christ, the testimony of God, is to be proclaimed. Last Sunday, we saw how the Apostle John wrote about God's testimony concerning His Son. So if God's testimony is about Christ, our testimony as pastors should be too. Christ and His work are the content of pastoral ministry. So that means... John, we're, we're not looking to create disciples of Reformed theology as much as we love Reformed theology. We're looking to make disciples that have Christ-centered theology. Disciples who can explain doctrines, not just faithfully from Scripture, but how Christ illumines that doctrine for us. Number two, Paul decided to know nothing among the Corinthians but Christ and Him crucified. This was intentional on Paul's part. He decided. The New American Standard Bible translates decides as determined. So Paul was not deliberating the night before he got to Corinth. Hmm. Wonder what my ministry is going to be like. What am I going to talk about? He didn't get the Corinth Times flip through it, which is probably a scroll, whatever, and say, oh, well, this is kind of a hot-button issue in Corinth. I think I'll center my ministry around this. No, he was 
determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He had decided what His ministry would be long ago. It wasn't an option. He was called by God for this purpose. It was His decision, and nothing could distract Him from it. But notice, thirdly, that Paul also proclaimed a complete message. He preached Christ and Him crucified. Christ's person cannot be separated from His work, and His work cannot be separated from His person. Christ's work on the cross is effective because of who He is. So you must preach and teach the person and work of Christ. So Paul teaches that pastors must make an intentional and determined decision to proclaim a whole gospel because God uses the gospel to bring sinners to Himself and then makes those redeemed sinners like Jesus through the gospel. Which leads us to the goal. The goal of pastoral ministry is accomplished through the content. And the goal is that God would save sinners and that He might sanctify those saved sinners through the proclamation of the gospel. It is through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel that God brings sinners to Himself. 1 Corinthians 1 is helpful here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, how does God supremely glorify Himself? Well, it's through saving in sanctifying sinners who were by nature His enemies. God accomplishes redemption in Christ, and God accomplishes sanctification in Christ. It is through the preaching and proclamation of Christ that God the Holy Spirit brings sinners to Himself. So we can see how the content and the goal, they go together. They're not separate. God initially redeems sinners through the gospel, and He progressively redeems them, if you will. He sanctifies them through the gospel. The Apostle Paul, once again in Colossians, him, as Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what was the goal of Paul's proclamation? It was to present everyone mature in Christ. And how did he do that? Through proclaiming Christ. So the goal of pastoral ministry, redemption and sanctification is accomplished through Christ-centered proclamation. And the emotion that drives this proclamation is love for Christ and His people. The emotion that drives pastors is love. Paul wrote to Timothy, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And John, I already know you know this because your philosophy of ministry paper from pastoral training was speaking the truth in love. Proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for the redemption of, and sanctification of God's people flows from a heart that loves Christ and His people. In John 21, Jesus asked Peter three times if He loves him. And Peter replies each time, You know that I love you. 
Then Jesus responds each time by telling Peter to either feed or to tend to his sheep, which are metaphors for teaching. There are two lessons for us here. First, caring for Christ's sheep flows from our love for him. And Jesus' words here signify a deep devotion to him. So John, you care for Jesus' sheep best when you love Jesus most. Second, we see that the church belongs to Jesus. They're his sheep. They're not our sheep. They're his sheep, and he decides how they will best be served. So we have two more, point, two more points, but how, how did we get here? Well, first we see the motive for pastoral ministry is God's glory. We see that the work of pastoral ministry is preaching and teaching the Bible. We see that the content of that is Christ and Him crucified. The goal of pastoral ministry is the redemption and sanctification of God's people. And the emotion is love for Christ and His people. And that brings us to the road. John, the road you travel as a pastor is faithfulness in life and ministry. Faithful pastors resonate with the words of Paul as he was at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is the desire of pastors who love Christ. We want to be able to say the same thing Paul did. We want to say we fought the good fight and that we were faithful. Well, how does a pastor walk this road of faithfulness? First, we must rely on the Holy Spirit as he works through Scripture. Second, Paul answers this way in 1 Timothy 4, Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Paul calls Timothy to be diligent in two areas. The first was his life. The life of the pastor is important, how he lives. The qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 are not just, they're not entrance qualifications. You don't just get to meet them once and then you're done. They're ongoing qualifications. And thankfully God, by His grace and in His mercy, has given them to us so that we can use them to watch our life. So the character of the pastor can either make or break his ministry. Second, Paul said to watch closely the teaching. This could be translated as doctrine. Pastors must, must watch their theology. And those who do not keep a close watch on their teaching eventually will drift into false teaching and sadly hurt Christ's sheep. So to walk the road of faithfulness, pastors must be men of the Bible. It is the Bible that opens our eyes so that we can keep a vigilant watch on our life and doctrine. And pastoral ministry is a mammoth endeavor. If there's a word bigger than mammoth, I couldn't think of it. It's a mammoth endeavor. And John, there will be times, and maybe you've had them already in training, where you ask who is sufficient for these things. Where am I going to have, where is the energy going to come from that I might keep going? We left our own devices, pastoral ministry could not happen. We are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the energy and power for pastoral ministry. So for one final time, we turn to the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 5.18. Most of us probably quoted in our sleep at this point. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Christian pastors should not live under the influence of anything but the influence of the Holy Spirit. And how are we filled with the Spirit? How are all Christians filled with the Spirit? By being full of the Bible. So, John, do you want a pastoral ministry that is blessed and used by the Spirit? I think you do. Then devote yourself to the Word and submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. The second text is 2 Corinthians 2, 4. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, wisdom, but demonstration of the Spirit and power. So Paul's gospel message made a life-altering impact on the Corinthians because of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit had not worked as Paul preached the gospel, nothing would have happened, and the same is true today. Pastoral ministry needs the Holy Spirit because without His powerful work, pastoral ministry is pointless. There'd be no reason to get up here. There'd be no reason to give counsel. There'd be no reason to disciple if the Holy Spirit did not work. And our good friend Spurgeon understood this reality. Each Sunday as he walked up the steps leading to the pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, with each step he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. He knew that unless the Holy Spirit worked, he would preach in vain. And brothers and sisters, these seven words, I think, are a good guide for you to use to pray for John, to pray for me, to pray for our pastor. So what is pastoral ministry? It is a calling, a noble task to teach and preach Christ and Him crucified out of love for Christ and His people for their sanctification. This must be done faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit and for God's glory alone.